We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up on Forum, Governor Gavin Newsom lifted the state's stay-at-home orders today, allowing restaurants to reopen for outdoor dining and salons to resume appointments. We'll get the latest on the move and what it means for the Bay Area. But first, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is set to deliver a single article of impeachment against former President Donald Trump to the U.S. Senate today. We'll get the latest on impeachment and other news out of Washington. That's all next, right after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to deliver one article of impeachment against former President Donald Trump to the Senate today. This clears the way for a Senate trial to begin on February 9th to decide whether to convict Trump of inciting an insurrection at the Capitol. Meanwhile, a growing number of Republican senators oppose holding the impeachment trial and joining us to share the latest on impeachment proceedings and catch up with President Biden's most recent executive orders is Susan Davis, NPR reporter covering Congress. Welcome, Susan Davis. Hey there. Good to have you. Also good to have Cheryl Gay Stolberg with us, who's Washington correspondent, covers health policy for the New York Times. Welcome, Cheryl Gay Stolberg. Thank you. Good to have you both with us. And Susan Davis, let me begin with you. The article of impeachment will be delivered today by Speaker Pelosi. Trial set for February 9th. But let's see if we can kind of uh, track this, because as I said in the introduction, there's certainly opposition. There's opposition on a couple of counts. One is uh, from Republicans who are saying this will affect national unity, but they're also putting forward a constitutional argument uh, that the president is no longer in office. Therefore, why go through a trial? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a defense that we're going to hear a lot from Republicans. And we've also started to hear, uh, we've har- we've already started to hear, and we're going to hear a lot more. You know, there's a point to be made here. We don't really have hard black and white answers on these questions. The Constitution, in a lot of ways, when it comes to impeachment and many other matters, is sort of intentionally vague. The House has the power impeach, to, pay, to impeach. They did that when President Trump was still in office. He's now a former president. Um, there's a lot of questions that are raised in, in having a former president go through an impeachment trial. One of them, just one of many of them, is who presides. The Constitution outlines that when a president is up for impeachment, that the, the presiding officer is the Supreme Court justice. John Roberts did it in the first impeachment trial. Now there's a question of whether that should be him, because it is not a president under impeachment. And if not him, who? Um, the Senate has a lot of procedural questions to raise here. I don't think that there is any doubt that a trial will go forward. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said there will be a vote to uh, acquit or convict. But I think that many Republicans will use that constitutional murkiness as an explanation as why they will likely be a vote not to convict, saying simply they don't believe that they have the jurisdiction to do so. 
And Susan, I need to ask you also what you think about the recent revelation, how that will play into the trial that uh, Jeff Rosen, as attorney general, well, that President Trump was essentially planning to fire him and replace him with Jeff Clark, uh, who was sympathetic to Trump's views of uh, election fraud in Georgia. This is uh, really coming on the heels of, of course, uh, Trump's phone call to uh, Georgia officials, and uh, it may be part of the trial, presumably. It could be, but this gets complicated too. You know, Democrats move forward with this impeachment and the the allegations in this reporting is not part of the charges here. So whether the impeachment managers who will be led by a congressman from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, whether they choose to use uh, additional outside information, certainly information that Congress hasn't vetted itself, uh, is an open question here. We don't know the answer to that. Or will they simply try to focus narrowly on the events of January 6th and the public rhetoric of the president and the public record of the president uh, leading up to the rally as the evidence? Or will they try to use additional reporting? I, I don't think we know the answer to that. Um, the ni there's nine impeachment managers. They've been working on their strategy for weeks. The one thing we do know that Jamie Raskin has said is they don't anticipate a very long trial and they don't anticipate that it will run longer than the first impeachment trial. And that first trial ran about three weeks. So it should be wrapped up in relatively short order once the trial begins in earnest in a couple weeks. Susan Davis, NPR reporter who covers Congress. Cheryl Gay Solberg is Washington correspondent for The New York Times, covers health policy. And I want to talk about executive orders with you as well, Cheryl. But uh, let's begin with this 200-page national strategy that has been presented by the Biden administration in terms of what's being called a wartime strategy. What are we learning from this? Well, I think what we're learning is that um, President Biden really wants to pursue a, a far different strategy to combat the coronavirus pandemic than President Trump. President Trump left it to the states. President Biden is calling for a much more muscular federal response. And uh, that will include, for example, federally supported mass vaccination clinics in places like high school gymnasiums or sports stadiums. It will include uh, mobile vaccination units. Uh, the president has stood up a pandemic testing board to greatly expand the availability of coronavirus tests. He is harking back in a way to FDR's wartime production board. Um, he's very interested in racial equity and he has created an equity task force to make sure that resources and vaccines are distributed equitably across racial lines. Uh, we know that people of color have been disproportionately affected. So uh, in some, what we're seeing is a very far-reaching strategy that incorporates the federal government into every aspect of the coronavirus response. And we're revising some of the bans that were uh, essentially lifted during the Trump administration. I'm talking particularly about South Africa now, where there's a new variant. Yes, uh, President Biden uh, will announce today or his administration will announce that they are uh, banning travel from South Africa to anyone uh, who is not a United States citizen. The Biden administration is also reinstating travel bans for other countries, the UK, Ireland, and I think 26 countries in Europe. Brazil. That, uh, and also Brazil, that's right, um, that were set to expire uh, under uh, the Trump administration's order, but uh, President Biden is reinstating them. So lots of changes going on. In fact, I think symbolically, the um, I was reading that the statue of, uh, or the bust of Andrew Jackson has been replaced with one of Benjamin Franklin, and there are now busts of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Cesar Chavez, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. They're 
been significant almost quantum changes. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, at this point about one of the biggest changes that is really current in the news now, and that is uh, the ban on transgenders in the military. I wonder how this is going to play in Peoria. Some thoughts from you, Cheryl? Well, I think that, you know, when President Obama was in office, the country went a long way toward accepting LGBTQ people and made great strides in advancing transgender rights. President Trump undid those in, in many ways, depriving transgender people of the ability to serve in the military, of uh, also certain other rights that they had. I, I'm, I'm sort of blanking out on all the different things, all the different ways that President Trump rolled back the rights of transgender people in places like schools and in the workplace, discrimination issues, etc. Um, you know, I think we'll see. I think this issue is in a way uh, kind of a touchstone for the divide that we are seeing in our country. Uh, it's what we used to call a culture wars issue. And on the right, you have people who find this anathema and who insist that people are born with a gender and that is the, the gender that they have. And on the left, you have a demand for inclusiveness and for, um, you know, for openness. And we'll see, you know, how, how this plays out. But President Biden is the president and he is the commander in chief and he has the right to make this kind of order. In fact, uh, it has been made. Uh, the executive order has been signed repealing the ban on transgender people serving openly in the military, a ban that, again, former President Donald Trump had put into effect. And the White House uh, has said now that that ban will be lifted. Uh, interested in hearing what's on your mind. I'm talking to the listeners now. And if you have questions for either of our guests, uh, talking about recent news, of course, current news coming out of Washington, you can give us a call and we invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available for your calls. The number to call 866-733-6786. We welcome your involvement in the program. So please feel free to join us. And you can join us not only by phone at 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Here's an email from Robert who says, Republicans, please spare me talk of unity and alleged concern for being divisive when you still don't acknowledge and reject the lie that the election was stolen. Let me go back, if I could, to you, Susan Davis, just to ask about what's happening in preparation for this trial. I mean, there were about 20,000 troops uh, in Washington, they're pretty much dissipating now in numbers or diminishing in numbers. There are about 7,000, I believe, in the National Guard to remain. But there have been a lot of threats and there's a lot of still concern, isn't there? There is. You know, th there's an element to this that around this trial that will be very different in partly because of the pandemic. Um, you know, in normal times, the Capitol is bustling with people, not just members of Congress, but press and staff and members of the public. And normally something like an impeachment trial would be open to the public. But the comp the, the complex in the Capitol itself has been closed to the public for months and months, and that's going to continue through the trial. It's a little bit easier to secure the building and not have to worry about that kind of element if you don't have public tours and things going through it. Although it is part of the heartbreak of all this is that the People's House has been closed to the country for almost going on a year now. Um, so that's an element to it. I do think we know that National Guard troops and some element of them will remain in the city through, I believe it was March was the most recent announcement. But, you know, we are accustomed. I mean, it's hard. D.C. is 
very comfortable and familiar with security protocols, regardless of what happened on January 6th, which was terrible and, and uh, the attack in question. But they have the support they need if they choose to execute it wisely. And the lesson of January 6th was that um, they were not prepared and they did not execute wisely. And now it would, there's sort of an overcorrection here in that law enforcement has been on hyper alert. And I think that's going to continue, especially because they have been an increase of threats, especially towards many members of Congress and likely to be many members of Congress who are involved um, in the impeachment trial. And frankly, you know, any Republicans that may vote to convict the president, which is an open question here, but there's a question of security for them as well. Anyone who goes against the party right now has certainly seen a marked increase, not just in physical threats, but political threats and any other number. And they've been quite candid about it. So it's it's a it's a big, broad question. But I think that the Capitol Police and federal law enforcement is hyper aware of it. Yeah, there were members of the House of Representatives who were wearing armor and bulletproof vests, which is a sad commentary in itself. Do you still think that's going on now? I don't know. I mean, the, the House has certainly implemented new security procedures. Um, Democrats made the unilateral decision to put magnetometers, metal detectors outside of the House chamber and are requiring lawmakers to go through them to enter the floor, which is kind of remarkable if you think about it, because literally the only people that are allowed onto the floor of the House without going through uh, security devices are members of Congress. So putting up metal detectors there in some ways implies that members themselves could be the threat, which, you know, even after 9-11 and any other number of security threats on the Capitol, they They've never put up metal detectors for members to go through. Uh, and the other metal detectors on the campus, members are allowed to walk around. They don't have to go through them the way that people like I do or people of the public do. Um, so, and the, uh, Democrats are also considering, and they're probably going to do it when they return, they're not in session this week, to find members who do go around the metal detectors. They're talking of imposing a $5,000 fine the first time and a $10,000 fine the second time if they ignore the metal detectors. So the community, the sense of uh, relationship between between Democrats and Republicans, especially in the House right now, is is very poor, and there's a lot of mistrust. And please feel free to join us. We're coming up on a 60-second break, but when we return, we'll hear from you. Our call, uh, excuse me, our number, 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about national news with Susan Davis, NPR reporter covering Congress, and Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent uh, who covers health policy for the New York Times. And we do invite you to be part of the program. You can join us toll free at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Here's an email from Chris who says, Funny how Republican senators didn't let the question of constitutionality get in the way of them acting on other topics and laws when it suited them. Suddenly now they use the excuse and need to be very careful about respecting the Constitution. Here's David. David, join us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Susan. I have a question. Um, What do you think the possibility for the Senate to come up with a procedural rule to have a secret vote on the impeachment 
Uh, I don't think it's possible, frankly. Uh, the r Senate rules on impeachment are written in stone. They have their, they're guided by the rules of the Senate. There's lots of precedent for it. The Senate, of course, can kind of do anything it wants if it gets unanimous consent, the consent of all 100 senators. I just can't envision a world in which 100 senators agree to hold any kind of secret ballot, especially of something of such significant consequence as a conviction vote for a former president of the United States. I, I honestly don't think the public would stand for it either. So I don't think it's procedurally possible. And even if it was, I, I don't think it's politically possible to do I so. I think I have to agree. It would be inconceivable. Let me bring another caller aboard. Uh, Lisa joins us next. Lisa, welcome. You're on the air on Forum. Hi, Michael and Susan. My name is Lisa. I live in Oakland, California. My question was, if Biden He's put the executive order forward for the um, LGBT um, rights in the military, et cetera, rolling those back. How can he make that into law? So if another president after him wants to do, you know, away with that, it's not really possible or it would take much more effort than an executive order. Yeah, thank you for that question, Lisa. Can I go to you, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg? Yes, of course. Um, well, there have been longstanding efforts in Washington to actually expand the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include LBGTQ people, and they haven't really gone anywhere. So, um, obviously, if uh, he wants to put it in law, then his administration will have to propose legislation to be taken up by the Congress. And uh, we have seen that these kinds of bills don't really have a great future in a very divided Washington. And especially right now, we're seeing a 50-50 Senate. The Senate can't even agree on uh, its own power sharing structure. So um, I think that there is a reason that presidents, including President Biden, act with executive orders. And it, it is be to do things that basically they cannot convince Congress to do. It's not as lasting. Um, President Biden is now busy undoing a lot of Trump's executive orders. Trump undid a lot of Obama's executive orders. But it's a way to get something done in Washington uh, without having to go through Congress if you're the president. Yeah, in fact, you might say something, Cheryl, about all these executive orders. There's been quite a flurry of them, and most of them are just geared toward undoing what Trump did. Yes, that's exactly right. And um, there have been a flurry of them, and we're going to see more this week. We will see executive orders, an executive order banning travel from South Africa and also reinstituting travel bans from other countries uh, for non-citizens to come to the United States, uh, reinstituting the bans that Trump was going to let expire. There will be some immigration orders next week. Uh, we had a slew of executive orders, as I previously mentioned last week, uh, to enact the 200-page national coronavirus strategy. So I think President Biden is coming in and he wants to basically put his own stamp on the office right away to show that he is engaged in fulfilling the promises that he made. And the quickest way to do that is to issue executive orders, and we're going to see them one after the other all week. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent, New York Times. Dave is our next caller. Dave, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, I think that the the impeachment is unnecessary because the courts can deal with Trump. There was an uh, opinion piece in the Post the other day by the guy who started the uh, the Lincoln Project or whatever it's called that uh, the Republicans against Trump, 
that listed, uh, you know, a, a, a bunch of uh, of crimes for which Trump can be prosecuted. And it seems that this is taking time away from Biden's agenda and and unnecessary. Let the courts deal with Trump. Put him in jail. He won't be he won't be able to run. Now, Dave, I appreciate hearing from you, and thank you for that opinion. I'm going to go right to another caller. Stephen joins us next. Stephen, thank you for waiting. Join us. Thank you. I know this isn't a very unifying sentiment, but I actually, as much as I'd like to see Trump convicted, actually I don't want him disqualified from holding future office because I want him to run again. I want to watch him lose again. I want him to be a millstone around the neck of the Republican Party. Only now is Mitch McConnell finished with Trump. Sorry, Mitch, you made this Faustian bargain. Okay, now that your useful idiot has lost his utility, I want to watch all the sycophantic Republican rats slink off the stern of the slowly sinking ship of Trumpism. That is what the Republican Party deserves. All right, Stephen, thank you for your opinion. Good to hear from you. I want to go back, uh, Susan Davis, to you with a question that's been kind of hovering in my mind, and that is this slim margin in Congress uh, that the Democrats presently have of 221 to 211 and really a 50-50 divide in the Senate. Uh, Presidents have, um, well, in almost every single administration, with the exception, I think, of the Bush administration, had uh, losses during the midterm uh, since the 1930s. It's been typical to suffer big losses, especially in the first midterm of a presidential administration. And how are Democrats preparing for that? I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that, particularly in light of the fact that uh, the Republicans uh, back in 2020 won 28 of 29 of the most competitive seats uh, by emphasizing job-killing policies that President Biden is now enacting. I don't think that Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer go a single day without thinking about the midterms in some capacity. Now, I'm sure they say publicly they do not, but these are two very savvy, smart political tacticians, and they know exactly how narrow these majorities are. And I think that's part of the reason why you hear a lot of the conversation in the Democratic Party right now being about going as big and bold as they possibly can because they can't take for granted that they'll have uh, control of Congress after the midterm elections based on at least historical precedent, although I would argue in the modern world, some of these precedents don't apply as as rigorously as they did before. Um, I think this is why we're having a renewed debate right now about the filibuster in a 50-50 Senate. Uh, a lot of activists on the left and, and many, many Democratic senators would love to see it be uh, removed or you know, fi- go fully, finally nuclear and remove the last 60 vote hurdle to the legislative filibuster in order to get some of these uh, p- policies through. It might now, Susan, be their forgive best me, chance. I just want to interrupt you for a second because I'm looking at an email that just came in from Daniel yeah. who says, how can President Biden get his legislative agenda through Congress without eliminating the filibuster? The Republicans will not be bipartisan on the most important issues like police brutality, racial injustice and COVID relief. Yeah, I mean, frankly, he may not be able to. The the, the the challenge of a 50-50 Senate can't be overstated. And it's not just for Joe Biden. If you look at the last 10 years on Capitol Hill, Congress has been almost historically unproductive because of increasing polarization and an inability to do anything that doesn't come at a time of crisis. You know, they've of course, they've been able to pass certain things like COVID relief bills or keeping the government funded after shutdowns, but it's governing by crisis. It's not sort of proactive governing. Um, when you look at things like immigration, you know, Joe Biden's going to put forward another immigration bill. 
Congress hasn't been able to wrestle this question in a generation. I, I, I can't give you any reason to think that you should be more optimistic that 2021 is the time to get it done in a 50-50 Senate. But Biden campaigned on part of his pitch was that he is someone who knows how to do this, who knows how to govern, who knows how to reach across the aisle. The open question, we don't know the answer. Um, I think we'll get hints of this answer in the coming weeks and months is how much willingness is there in the Republican Party to to cut deals in their own right? You know, and during the Obama era, the Republicans on Capitol Hill drew a very firm red line and they wanted nothing to do with the administration and they gave nothing. Um, part of that opposition led very vigorously by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. If, if Joe Biden faces that same kind of resistance, you might find a much greater willingness among Democrats to do things like ultimately remove the filibuster because they'll feel like they had no choice, although it would absolutely only increase uh, polarization on in Congress, if you can even imagine it getting much worse than it is right now. Uh, it's almost beyond the pale of imagination. Uh, <laughs> final thought uh, from you, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, about what can be done and what can be accomplished, particularly on the health front? Well, I think Susan said it very well. We do need to see whether or not there's going to be any cooperation from Republicans. President Biden has a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package pending before Congress. Uh, it seems to me that he's gotten no honeymoon at all. We're already seeing Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, attacking uh, President Biden, saying his new plan is all Washington spin. So, um, you know, I think we're in a wait and see mode. I don't think that we've turned the corner on our divisiveness in Washington or in the country at all. On that note of wait and see and the hope that maybe some corners can be turned, let me thank both of you for being with us for this first segment of the program. Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent, New York Times. Good to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Susan Davis, NPR reporter. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.